Good morning. Whoa. I'm not sure which microphone was that loud. Sorry about that. Thank you for that long reading. I know that was a lot. Um, if you have your Bibles, electronic or real, well, maybe they're all real, uh, electronic or in paper, uh, you may pull them out, if you will. Um, as uh, was said earlier today, we're moving through this greatest story, uh, the story of God through the arc of history. You know, it's uh, really quite amazing. This, this whole history of creation, we're going to go through the history of man, the history of redemption. And we're very early in the series. If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, this is only week three. Two weeks ago, Todd reminded us of the creator and the creation of order out of chaos. Uh, the man was created to share in God's forever happiness. That man is the sub-creator, bearing children to fill the world, bearing the fruit of the Spirit to create beauty and to fill the earth. And we do this all as we are good stewards of the earth. But last week, Harrison gave us the bad headlines. Things really went wrong. Things are wrong with the world. Things are wrong with you, with me, with us. And he told us what and why things are wrong. It was and is the result of a terrible lie. But he also told us that God is calling out to us as he did to Adam and Eve and that we need the snake crusher. I love that one. We need the snake crusher. We rec- I have an alarm system in, um, in a little house we have in the mountains. Uh, I, I don't have much of value in our house in the mountains, but my little tool house has my ATV. That's worth a lot. Um, so I have an alarm system there. One day my alarm went off, which is, goes on my phone, and I was with a patient, and I said, excuse me, I need to look at this. And it was two snakes falling out of a, um, uh, a shelf onto the ground, and they actually triggered it. They were so big. So I need the snake crusher, okay? I thought, immediately thought of that when you said that last week, Harrison. I really did. Todd also told us in this first sermon, by the way, that we're using the Jesus storybook to guide us into areas of emphasis as we move through the greatest story that unfolds in the Bible. Now, we're not going to hit all stories in the Jesus storybook, but most of them. And as I've said, we've seen this great beginning, and we've seen this terrible lie that threatens to undo the great beginning. And today, we see a new beginning. So why do we need a new beginning? Well, as I've said, because of the damage inflicted by the terrible lie. Now, we're ready to read uh, Genesis 4 and the first eight verses of Genesis 6, and see what happened from the time of Adam and Eve, from the time Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden to the time of Noah, it would not be a pretty sight. It would be pretty bad. The Jesus storybook actually summarizes Genesis 6, 1 through 8 as follows. Time passed and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain when he saw what had happened to the world he loved. Everywhere was disease and death and destruction, all the thing God hates most. This is why a new beginning was needed. God needed to wipe this light clean. And that's what he's tried to do, or that's what he did with Noah. Now, as I read the narrative of Noah, both this time and in many times in my life, I actually struggle with two different questions, and I'm going to make you struggle with them today as well. The first one is, did God choose Noah because he was good? So that's what we're going to look at from the first reading today. Did God choose Noah because he was good? 
And the second, the second reading, we're going to ask that whether God's plan to punish humanity and the earth and start over, did it fail? Because sin remained. Let's pray. Lord, let's, uh, we just ask that you be with us as we think about your word and, and consider um, the implications of it. Lord, make your spirit uh, move upon us so that we can understand and apply the word that we might live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our text begins today, verse 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now I am, and I think some of you, and perhaps many of you, are like me. I'm one who always finds it easy to succumb to the false idea that I need to earn God's love. At least that seems to be the default way that I look at things. I need to work hard. I need to earn that which I get. If I don't earn it, then I don't deserve it. This seems to be the lens with which I look at the world. It's the way I look at myself. I look at the world around me. If I've been successful, my lens tells me that this is because I worked hard and earned it. If I'm not successful, my lens tells me that I did something wrong or I didn't do something right and I didn't deserve it or earn it. If someone around me is having trouble or problems, my lens tells me that they're doing something wrong or they're not doing something right, and they deserve those troubles as well. And you know, the problem is, that's actually partially true. There are consequences of our actions. Consider Proverbs 6, where the sluggard is encouraged to look at the ant. Proverbs 6, verses 10 through 11, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Our culture, steeped as it is in the Protestant work ethic, tends to say the same thing. Work hard and you'll get rewarded. And the converse. If you're getting rewarded, it must be because you're earning it. And if you don't have the things you need, it's because you're not working hard enough. So when I read that Noah found favor, that he was a righteous man and blameless in his time, my default is to say, see? I told you so. Noah had to do the right things. He had to be blameless and righteous for God to bless him and use him. He had to earn what he got from God. That's the way that I will automatically read this. The problem, frankly, is that the lens that I use is actually blinding me. It's not helping me. It's blinding me from the truth that's described here. The lens I use is keeping me from understanding. Jesus describes people like this when he talks about speaking in parables. He says they're seeing, but they do not see, and they're hearing, and they do not hear, nor do they understand. In order to truly see and to truly understand, I need to understand, what does it actually mean to find favor? Well, there are several Hebrew and Greek words that can be translated favor. In the version that I use, the New American Standard, they occur 122 times in the Old Testament and 15 times in the New Testament. These words are translated favor. It can come from Hebrew and Greek words that mean to act favorably, to have a feeling of favor, to be favored, to shine the face upon, to be blessed, or to bless. And these words are used in a variety of relationships and situations. Um, for example, and this is not an exhaustive list, people finding favor with other people. Most often for things they've done, but, but not always. God causing people to find favor with others. God himself finding favor with people, as in Noah here in our passage today, or shining his face upon them in other passages. 
And of course, God blessing various people. I actually read bits and pieces of all 122 of these passages. And when you look at them at the times, uh, when you look at them more closely, at the times in which God is finding favor or blessing, there are indeed times when it does seem like he's doing something in a person or he sees something in the person and rewards them with his favor. But the interesting thing is that it's not usually perfection or sinlessness or righteousness. It's most commonly humility. But most of the time when God finds favor and he blesses it, it's for no discernible reason. God finds favor, he blesses for no apparent reason outside himself and his own decisions. It is most often not because of something he sees in the person. But the thing that is evident in each of these situations, or in most of them, whether they're human-human or human-divine, is that finding favor involves relationship. Now, whether it's Ruth finding favor with Boaz, Esther finding favor with the king, or the nation of Israel finding favor with God, there is nearly always this substantial relationship. And this is what I've always missed because this is true of Noah as well. The end of verse 9, Noah walked with God. The Bible storybook says it this way. Now Noah was God's friend, which was odd in those days because no one else was. Noah listened to God. He talked to God. He just loved being with God like you do with your best friend. What a great description of walking with God, of knowing God. God. We so do often default to a thought that a relationship with God requires that we be good. That if we're not good, then God will get us. When bad things happen, we think it's because we're being punished. We may even think that we don't deserve or even have a relationship with God which we do desire. And let me pause for a moment because I've actually been thinking over the last couple of days about why it is that I always think this way. And I think it's because I want control. I want to control God. If God has to give me what I earned, I'm in charge. But when God, when God gives me things, then he can make demands on me. And I'm not sure I always like that, to tell you the truth. So it's really, I think, this lens that I have is this reaction I have because I want to be the one in control. And we so often confuse knowledge about God with knowledge of God. And so we can go through our religious activities, we can know a lot about God, but it can be very dry, there can be no life in it. And we can be very busy in our lives, inside and outside the church. So busy that we miss knowing God, even though we know a lot about Him. But the reality for those of us who are followers of Jesus is that this should really be the other way around. We don't have a relationship with God because we're good. We have a relationship with God, and that means we will want to be obedient. It's already been mentioned this morning. That relationship, graciously started by God, should result in knowing God, not just knowledge about God, and it should work itself out in evidence in our hearts, our words, and our actions. It certainly did in Noah, didn't it? I mean, the rest of chapter 6 describes him building the ark. Quite a thing to do in the desert, don't you think? A little odd, okay? Do you think Noah would have done such a thing if he didn't have a really incredible relationship with God, if he hadn't truly known God? 
Now, as most of you know, our focus this year as a church is to deepen our intimacy with Christ. We started the year by spending time understanding ourselves, and we're spending the summer focusing on knowing God. As we know ourselves and know God better, we will better understand what it means to be in a relationship with God and develop that intimacy with Christ, which we all desire. Now, I hope you have taken the time to start to read the book the pastors and elders have recommended, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I probably last read this book 30 years ago when I led a class through it at the church we were attending at the time. Unfortunately, it has remained on my bookshelf for the last 30 years. It doesn't do a lot of good sitting there. I've started reading again, as Todd and the others requested, and I wish I had done this a long time ago. In the second chapter of his book, Packer warns us of the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And he makes two surprising statements. One I've already referred to, one can know a great deal about God and not, much, and not have much knowledge of him. The second one is perhaps more surprising, and I've hinted at it a little bit. One can know a great deal about godliness, that is, about being a follower of Jesus and how a follower of Jesus should live. One can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. In other words, we can live a life that looks godly without knowing God. Packer then uses the book of Daniel to come up with four statements that he thinks describe those who know God. Those who know God have great energy for God. They have great thoughts of God. They show great boldness for God. And they have great contentment in God. Now, clearly I don't have time to unpack these today, but I'm only going to say that if these don't partially describe your experience part of the time, I didn't say all of them all of the time, okay? If they don't partially describe you part of the time, then maybe you know more about God than know God. And I would encourage you to read Packer's book more to take the next steps to begin to know God. You see, God did not choose Noah because he saw that he was good or because he knew he would do good. God graciously favored Noah with knowledge of himself. Noah walked with God. God walked with Noah. The result was that Noah had great energy, great thoughts, great boldness, and great contentment as he built and entered the ark and then rode out the storm and the flood for the preservation of mankind. I've actually thought a little bit about him in the ark, them in the ark, and the flood. Nanette and I once were on a cruise ship that crossed the North Sea. <laughs> it was awful. It was up and down. I mean, I just imagine Noah and this little time. I mean, that many cubits is not that big a ship, you know. And just imagine them bobbing that whole time. I was just, oh man. But, but he did it and he was content. I mean, holy cow. He must have really known God. All right, so let's take this big jump to the end of the Noah narrative, okay? We're going to jump from 623 all the way to 97. Now, what we're skipping, the building of the ark, that rain and the flood I just talked about, the receding of the flood, Noah and his family and the other creatures getting off the ark, and the command to Noah and his sons that echoed what God had told Adam and Eve, Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So our second reading picks up here. And here I have this little question in my mind. Did God fail? 
I mean, it sounded like God was destroying mankind to get rid of the evil of mankind. But sin appears very quickly, doesn't it? Did God fail? So to think about this further, let's go to the end of our second passage first. Let's go to that last part where we read this really rather disappointing episode in the life of Noah. Oh my goodness. Noah has had his life sustained and that of his family by God through the flood. God has said that they should be fruitful and multiply. So Noah starts to farm. He becomes fruitful and then he becomes drunk. Good job. All right. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. All right, so there's a lot of debate about this one, okay? What does this really mean? What does it mean that Noah uncovered himself inside his tent and Ham saw the nakedness of his father? Some think it simply means what it says. Ham's offense was that he saw Noah naked. Others have seen evidence here that perhaps Ham actually sexually assaulted his father. Others, knowing that Leviticus 18 uses to uncover a man's nakedness as a euphemism for having intercourse with a man's wife, imply that Ham committed incest with his mother. So which is it? I don't know. We're not sure. But the actions of Shem and Japheth would seem to imply that the offense was actually the first one, that he was naked. And the actions of Shem and Japheth, uh, because the actions of Shem and Japheth would hardly seem adequate and appropriate if there was sexual assault, that they would just cover him up. And we look at that and think, so Ham's son Canaan was cursed simply because Ham saw Noah naked. That doesn't seem very fair. But in the patriarchal society of the day, this would have been a terrifically shameful thing for Ham to have done. It was very dishonoring to his father. Moreover, he increased the shame by telling his brothers. One wonders almost if he was bragging somehow when he went and told his brothers, increasing that shame. Now, I think even today we don't think much of people who truly shame their parents. But in that day, it was a terrible offense. But whatever this action was, it was sinful. And here, soon after the deliverance from the flood, when God intended to word the world of the wickedness of man, we have sin moving to the forefront of the narrative once again. And this really shouldn't surprise us. As Tim Keller notes, and I never really thought of it this way, God knew that there was a third thing that was loaded on the ark. Yes, there were human beings. Yes, there were animals. And yes, there was sin. Never thought of that. The sinful heart of Noah and his family went with them on the ark and survived the deluge. So we should not be surprised when it reemerges. And God was not surprised either. He was not ill-prepared. He did not fail. How do we know? Let's go back to the first part of our second reading today. Genesis 9.9 Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. The story of Noah is the first time that the word covenant is actually used in the Bible. Although one can see the outline of a covenant in God's relationship with Adam and Eve, 
The term is not used until here in the Noah narrative. So let's think about for a moment what a biblical covenant is. And we've spoken about this before. Noah, being a knowledgeable man of the ancient Near East, would have been familiar with what a covenant was in human terms. He would have been very familiar with this. In the ancient Near East, there were covenants between conquering kings and conquered countries. The conquered country would, uh, the king would state that he would protect and provide for the people of the conquered country. The conquered country would commit to being under the control and law of the king. And the covenant would actually spell out, would state the blessings, the good things that would come to the people of the conquered com- country if they kept the covenant. There were a lot of C words in that. That was really very, um, very alliterative there. Um, they would come to the people of the conquered country if they kept the covenant, the law of the king. And it would state the cursings and the bad things that would happen that would come to the people of this country if they did not keep this covenant or the law of the king. And there was often a reminder of this covenant. It could be this large tower that they would carve this information on or a small thing that would serve as the document that remind people and they would be on public display. Now, biblical covenants between God and man are the same, but there's one very important difference. Here, God the king knows that the people cannot keep the laws of his kingdom. The result would be that we would all suffer the curses, both in this life and in the life to come, of failing to keep the covenant unless God himself intervenes. And that he does. God will intervene because his people cannot keep their end of the covenant. Hints of this in the Old Testament covenants. Again, Harrison reminded us of this last week. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God promises, as Harrison told us last week, that a son of the woman will crush the offspring of the serpent. And here in Genesis 9 we read, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God sets his bow in the clouds. The NIV says he sets his rainbow in the clouds. And that's true. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. But the actual word bow is the same word that's used like a bow and arrow, which at that time in human history would have been the deadliest weapon of war. And note the direction that the bow is pointing. It's pointing up toward The rainbow is more than a sign of the covenant. It tells us, it helps us remember how God will deal with the sin that he knows still exists in the heart of man. God sets his bow in the clouds and aims it toward himself. Toward his own heart. God was not ill-prepared for the reemergence of sin in the world. He was not taken by surprise. He did not fail. 
In making the covenant with Noah, God not only offers the covenant, but he shows that he will take the covenantal curses for the failures and the sins of his people upon himself. And we know, as we understand much more about the greatest story than Noah ever even imagined, we know that this was and is finally done in the work of Jesus on the cross. Remarkably, incredibly, unbelievably, God Himself, through the death of God the Son on the cross, pays the covenantal price for our sins. When Tard started us off two weeks ago, he went through this list of things that are not right in the world. It was and is enough to, one, to make one almost give up hope for man or for our world. I remember it well. I was just sitting there, just getting more and more down as you went through that. And today, indeed, today may seem about as bad as the days of Noah, when the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intent of his heart was only evil continually. But with Noah, God made a new beginning. God knew that sin would still be in the world, and despite this, God has promised not to destroy man once again. He has pointed the war bow at his own heart. He has sent his son to redeem the world to begin to make right what is wrong. To redeem us and to use us to redeem, to make better the world around us. If you are one who knows about God but doesn't know God, I invite you to come to Jesus. To admit that you cannot save yourself and that you must depend on him for forgiveness to trust in Him for that forgiveness, and to begin to follow Him and begin the wonderful journey of getting to know God. For those of us who are already following and trusting in Jesus, who cling to the forgiveness that comes from being a believer, we must admit that we have not always done our part in God's redeeming plan. We have to admit, as Griffin was describing in the prayer of the people, or sorry, in the confession earlier, we have to admit that we ourselves have sometimes been satisfied uh, with knowing about God rather than seeking to know God, that we have not been the church we need to be. Let us all commit to seek to know God. Because for those who know God, there is energy, there is boldness, and there is power to help God in His great story of redemption. May God help us to do our part. Amen.